You mentioned it last week, Brian. So we decided to get stuck into it this week. But we've got to play the song, don't we, for the start? Well, which song, Jackie? Because I do think about Georgia, which is what we're talking about this week. And I think there's two really famous songs. There's Midnight Train to Georgia and then Ray Charles' Georgia on my mind. So which one are we going to go with? Well, I think one is more Christmassy than the others. So bear with me. I think we got to go... It is Christmassy, isn't it? Love it. It does actually. It has that Christmassy old. Here we go. Georgia. Nah, that's lovely. Isn't nice. it? Georgia. Let's just have Ray Charles sing it. The whole day. Absolutely. Just an old sweet song. Keeps Georgia on my mind. From RTE News, this is States of Mind. The people of this nation have spoken. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. They've delivered us a clear victory. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. The flame of democracy was lit in this nation a long time ago. And we now know nothing, not even a pandemic or an abuse of power, can extinguish that flame. Your US election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. You know, respecting the will of the people is at the heart of our democracy. Even when we find those results hard to accept. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. You know, the Democrats are off on the far left. The Republicans aren't, uh, aren't really, most of them don't have backbones. Never mind Georgia on my mind. Jackie Fox, snazzy new intro on my mind. I like that. I got there in the end. I got there in the end. It's good. It's good. But the dust is kind of settling from the presidential race at the moment, isn't it? We've had a crucial milestone for Joe Biden now. The Electoral College confirmed him as president-elect with no surprises. Nope, no surprises in the end. And normally the Electoral College vote is a kind of a low-key thing that happens in the background. It's just another date in the calendar, another step in the process. And what you see is these electors, these groups of people gathering in their state capitol buildings, voting for president. And I think what we saw this year was a reflection of the bizarre and difficult and tumultuous year we're in. First off, in Michigan, they had to have enhanced security and close down the offices for fears of threats of violence. In Arizona, the vote didn't take place in the state capitol building. It had to take place in an undisclosed location for fears of protest and unrest. Reminders of the pandemic too, Jackie. Nevada held its electoral college vote over Zoom. But in the end, it was California and California's 55 electoral college votes that put Joe Biden Over the top, he passed the magic number of 270. He reached his electoral college total of 306. And after that vote came in from California, it was all over. He delivered a big address to the nation, this big televised speech. He called for unity. 
He called for America to turn the page, but he also criticised Donald Trump for refusing to accept the result and for trying to overturn the will of the people. The Trump campaign brought, brought dozens and dozens and dozens of legal challenges to test the result. They were heard again and again. And each of the times they were heard, they were found to be without merit. Time and again, President Trump's lawyers presented arguments to state officials, state legislatures, state and federal courts, and ultimately to the United States Supreme Court twice. They were heard by more than 80 judges across this country, and in every case, no cause or evidence was found to reverse or question or dispute <clears throat> the results. His own cybersecurity chief overseeing this election said it was the most secure in American history. You know, respecting the will of the people is at the heart of our democracy, even when we find those results hard to accept. But that's the obligation of those who have taken on a sworn duty to uphold the Constitution. Brian, with Donald Trump, does he have any road left in contesting the election? For instance, OK, so we have the Electoral College votes, but they still have to go to Congress for approval in the new year. Can Congress overturn the result when it meets in January? Could this be the only final showdown that's left? Yeah, look, the, Donald Trump and his <laughs> team, it reminds me of Brexit, right? Every time there's a Brexit deadline, what happens? They push it out and there's another mm -hmm. one and another one and another one. Now with Donald Trump, we're seeing another deadline and another deadline. Remember a week ago, Jackie, Donald Trump actually said, I will accept the result of the Electoral College vote. But sure, as soon as it was in, he and his campaign were coming out saying, ah, the Electoral College doesn't matter. It's just another date in the calendar. What really matters is the 6th of January when they count the votes. And no doubt after that, they'll say that's another date in the calendar. What really matters is the 20th of January when he's inaugurated. But Donald Trump's team's latest strategy is to run their own alternate electoral college, like a rival electoral college on the rival of TV course. network. Of course, where a group of Trump loyal electors will, of course, vote for Donald Trump. And then they'll send those votes up to Congress to be counted on January 6th. But they can't do that. I mean, that is not part of the process. But January 6th is significant. And that is when all the Electoral College votes are bunched together. They're sent up to Capitol Hill and they are counted. We'll have envelopes containing the certificates showing the Electoral College results from all 50 states. And it's this big pomp and ceremony event. They get carried into the House of Representatives chamber inside two bound mahogany boxes that date from the 19th century. And then you'll have representatives from the newly sworn in House and Senate. This is a joint session of Congress. You'll have the President of the Senate, who was the Vice President Mike Pence. He will inspect and approve them. And in the read out the results. Now, at this point, members of Congress can object to results. And I'm sure we can expect lots of Republicans who are loyal to Donald Trump and want to impress this president that they fear, who they're afraid will destroy them on Twitter or run a candidate against them in one of their elections coming up over the couple of years, if they don't remain loyal to him and if they don't stand up for him. So no doubt they will make lots and lots of objections. But these objections don't go anywhere unless they have to be signed by both a member of the House of Representatives and the Senate and then passed by both chambers as well. So if a senator did sign on to challenge the results, Republicans could force Congress into a final messy debate over, 
Donald Trump's refusal to concede defeat and his those baseless claims of election fraud, which have been roundly rejected in court. Yeah, and messy is the word. It would be a messy debate, and it's not going to go anywhere, but I think we can probably expect fireworks, and we can expect lots of Republicans to stand up and want to make their voices heard, and as they say, want to impress Donald Trump, and they will shout and they will roar and they will object, no doubt, and maybe they'll push it to a point that it has to go to a vote. But remember, for the vote to carry, it would have to be passed by both the House and the Senate. Number one, the House is controlled by the Democrats, so there's no way on earth that they would ever vote to reject Joe Biden's victory. And even in the Senate, even if they win the Georgia runoffs that we're going to be talking about in a minute and the Senate has control, the margins are very, very tight. And you've lots of senators out there who've already acknowledged Joe Biden's victory. And they've already said that he's the president-elect. Most significantly, this week, Jackie, we had Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, the most senior Republican senator in the chamber, standing up and saying, now that the Electoral College vote is in, I congratulate Joe Biden, I congratulate Kamala Harris, they are the president and the vice president-elect. Of course, Donald Trump now has criticised him, saying that Mitch McConnell is being too quick and that it's not over yet and we need to fight on. But I think what Mitch McConnell has also been doing here is sort of giving permission to other Republicans that it's okay. It's okay to accept this. Because if you can imagine the scenario, Jackie, yeah. So imagine the Republicans who stand up and want to make a name for themselves and want to impress Donald Trump. But they generate this big debate then in the chamber where you have Republicans going, well, which, which am I loyal to here? Am I going to try and show off to Donald Trump? But that means questioning the entire electoral process, putting Republicans really in a very difficult position. Yeah, and all of that's being said, Brian, as well. The elections for Congress aren't really over yet either because there are still two runoff elections set for early January in Georgia. Numerous times on this podcast, we've talked about how states have their own laws and their own rules. And under Georgia law, candidates must receive a majority of the vote in order to win the election. And that didn't happen in November in the Senate races. No candidate got above 50% of the vote. So in January, you have all of this. And then you've got this Georgia vote where the top two vote getters have to face off again in a race to determine the winner. And these races are so important for all of those reasons we've talked about, but because they will determine what Joe Biden can do in office. Absolutely. These are crucial races and they're happening just two weeks before his inauguration. They'll take place on January 5th. He needs the support of Congress to push through all of his promises and pledges, whether it's judicial nominees, his administration appointees, health care, tax, spending. He needs the support of Congress. Before the election, remember, it was Democrats that controlled the House of Representatives and Republicans held the majority in the Senate. Right now, Democrats continued to hold the House. Now, they didn't have a brilliant election either. They did their, their majority narrowed, but they did manage to hold on to the House. But the battle remains for the Senate. And remember the numbers. 100 senators, each state gets two. At the moment, Democrats have 48 senators elected and Republicans have 50. So if the Democrats win those two Georgia seats, that could change the picture dramatically. Yes, so that means the task is harder for the Democrats. They have to win both. And if the Democrats can win both seats, you're going to have 50-50. That's a tie, I hear you say. (laughs) Yes, but technically it's the Democrats. Because in a tiebreaker situation, it's the vice president, Kamala Harris, who will have the deciding vote. Obviously, she's a Democrat. So technically, in a 50-50 split, it is the Democrats that control the Senate. 
Okay, so a lot riding on these elections for the Biden administration. And this is an unusual situation we find ourselves in with Georgia, 2020 unusual year. So we shouldn't really be surprised. Normally, Senate races are staggered. So a state's two seats are never up for re-election at the same time. Obviously, that is not the case for Georgia this time around because they have two Senate seats up for grabs. Yes, and as you say, that's unusual. It shouldn't happen. It's not supposed to happen. They're meant to be staggered. But what happened this time around, Republican Senator David Perdue, he was going to be facing his normal re-election anyway for a seat that he won back in 2014. But then additionally, on top of this, we have another Republican senator, a woman by the name of Kelly Leffler. She's facing a special election to serve out the remainder of her term, and that's because she was only appointed last year to succeed Senator Johnny Isaacson after he retired because of health issues. So if you can imagine the scenario, she was sort of only put in there on a temporary basis to see out his term. Now she has to run again to get that seat proper. The whole thing's been really dramatic, though, hasn't it? It's like a plot from some political drama, this race. It's absolutely fascinating to watch. We're going to go through the races now. Lots of names going to be coming at you, but they're interesting characters, so stick with us. Let's look at the first race. So this is a Senator David Perdue, which I mentioned earlier, the sitting Republican senator. He is being challenged by Democrat John Ossoff. Now, John Ossoff, young guy, 33 years old. He's a former documentary filmmaker. He's quite a big name in Georgia. He got his name out there during a special election back in 2017. He didn't win it, but he got quite a high profile out of it. He would be seen as a progressive, But he's conscious about not pushing that too hard because Georgia's quite conservative-leaning. Like, he wouldn't support things like defunding the police or the Green New Deal. On the other side, then, you had David Perdue, a typical Georgian Republican, until recently a relatively low-key member Mm. of the Senate. He is 71 years of age. He's quite closely aligned to Donald Trump and has moved that relationship closer in recent weeks in the hope of him getting a bump and getting some of Donald Trump's magic when you look at the huge 74 million votes that Donald Trump got in the election. He liked Donald Trump to come out and stump for him more probably, but he's doing okay in terms of that level of support. He agrees with Donald Trump's claims that there were failures in this election and problems when it comes to the vote. He got a lot of attention in recent weeks after he sort of made fun of and spoke about and made reference to the pronunciation of Kamala Harris's name. The most insidious thing that Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden are trying to perpetrate, and Bernie and Elizabeth and Kamala, or what Kamala, or Kamala, 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 I don't know. Whatever. That's not the only controversy for David Perdue either, is it, Brian? Like his fellow Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler, who we'll talk about in a moment, he was linked to the 2020 Congressional Insider Trading Scandal. Yes, both these senators have been accused of insider trading, of improper stock and share dealings. The suggestion being that as senators, they were given privileged, high security, classified briefings about the scale of the COVID-19 crisis early on in the crisis. And that they took this information and used it to sell a whole load of shares and buy a whole load of shares and use this privilege information and abuse their position in order to make money. Now, it should be said the Senate Ethics Committee cleared both David Perdue and Kelly Leffler of wrongdoing, but it doesn't matter. It is still something that has sort of tarnished their reputations, and it's something that's been very much clung onto and used in attacks against them by their Democratic opponents. So then in that other race, we have Kelly Leffler and we have Reverend Raphael Warnock. 
And I know we're talking about the drama here, but it really doesn't cut it with the this race. This has been totally bizarre. Yeah, particularly when you look at the individuals. So Kelly Leffler, very interesting individual, an American businesswoman, and she is loaded. She is stinking she, rich. Oh my God, <laughs> that is putting it lightly, isn't it? Loading it mildly. Her husband is the head of the New York Stock Exchange. She has a net worth thought to be in the region of around a billion dollars. Oh and she God. co-owns a women's basketball team called the Atlanta Dream. Now, her language on the campaign trail has been generating a lot of headlines, particularly when she refers to her opponent, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. And he is a black pastor of a Baptist church where Martin Luther King Jr. was once a pastor, right? That's right. And he would actually become the first ever black senator from Georgia if he was to be successful in this election. He's been around a long time. He's been a figure in Atlanta civil rights before he became a political candidate. Now, Republicans are going through all of these sermons that he delivers from his church line by line, looking for the controversy. They're trying to cast him as some sort of radical left-wing anti-white campaigner. He's tried to soften his image, and he had a recent campaign video in which he appeared with puppies. We told them the smear ads were coming, and that's exactly what happened. You would think that Kelly Leffler might have something good to say about herself, if she really wants to represent Georgia. Instead, she's trying to scare people by taking things I've said out of context from over 25 years of being a pastor. But I think Georgians will see her ads for what they are. Don't you? I'm Raphael Warnock and we approve this message. Oh, you have to go and check that video out. It is so funny. Definitely have a look at it. Um, And after all of this, These two races are very, very close. David Perdue just fell short of a majority. He would have needed to win re-election against his opponent, John Ossoff. But polling over the weekend showed that there's only 1% between Perdue and Ossoff. And polling shows in our second race, Warnock ahead of Leffler by around 1.7%. This is going to be so close. And at the end of the day, it's all going to be about turnout. Turnout will be key. And remember, you can look at the presidential race and say, huge turnout and Joe Biden won and Democrats and all that. That was a presidential race. And it is so, so different. I mean, we have it in Ireland as well. Think, Jackie, of the by-election. The turnouts are always way smaller. There isn't the same drama. There isn't the same hype as a big presidential election as you would have for these smaller runoff elections. And as well, look at the timing. New year straight after Christmas, Mm. the weather could be bad, COVID-19 through the roof. So turnout could be key, and I think a poor turnout could damage the Democrats. And Democrats, they've previously struggled in these races in the usually conservative-leaning Georgia. Yeah, because remember, Georgia is a red state. Joe Biden flipped it. He turned it into a blue state. But that was on a presidential level. So they haven't voted for a Democrat to the Senate in 20 years Of course, the Democratic candidates would say yes, but this time is different. When Joe Biden won, he became the first Democratic presidential candidate to win in almost 30 years. And there's huge, huge attention on Georgia right now. I did read a good argument, though, in the New York Times that Georgia, the Georgia race, it's likely to take on the same intensity as the presidential race because, yes, it has been turning blue, but there are numerous reasons why there. Yeah, and it's been happening, I suppose, over a period of a couple of years. Hillary Clinton lost Georgia in 2016, but only by five points. Stacey Abrams lost the race for the governor in 2018 by just 1.5 points. But all that's 
being said, it's still going to be hard, I think, for the Democrats to do it here. It is all about turnout. They're going to have to appeal to a more diverse group of voters if they want to get that vote out. And remember, there was a record-breaking turnout in 2020 for the November elections. Because it may seem like something obvious, but it's it's more complicated than it seems. People might go, if Biden won Georgia, why can't the Democrats win the Senate seats too? Yeah, but I guess it doesn't really work like that because Biden's strength helped Democrats force a runoff. And then there was a number of voters who either just voted at the top of the ticket for president and then they just didn't fill in all the other boxes or else they might have voted for Joe Biden at the top but then voted for Republicans all the way down. So you could have a scenario where there were lots of Republicans out there who were still loyal, still loyal to the senators, still loyal to the congressmen and congresswomen, but didn't want Donald Trump as president. So they were happy to give the vote to Joe Biden. They might be less happy to give the vote to a Democratic candidate for Senate further down the ticket. So it's the anti-Trump Republicans. But as a side note to that, there is tension between Donald Trump and even Republican state officials in Georgia. It's been an awful couple of weeks for election officials in the state who are largely Republican. Really bad. And I mean, we can look at Donald Trump's baseless claims of voter fraud. We can see all the tweets that get their little disputed labels attached by Twitter. We can see all the claims he and Rudy Giuliani makes. They get thrown out of court. They lose case after case after case after case. The worrying thing in all of this is that so many people believe Donald Trump when he says these things. And so many people agree with him that the election was stolen and that the Democrats cheated and that the whole thing was rigged and that you had these magical voting machines that switched all the votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And the problem with that is, and we've seen it in polling, there's been polling done of Republican voters that show large, large numbers of them do feel that this election was stolen and this election was robbed. And the very scary part and the really dark part of all of this is that it has led to threats of violence against state officials, against election workers. The Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffenberger in Georgia, has said that he and his family have received death threats after he certified the state result. And there was a very strong Georgia state official by the name of Gabe Sterling, again a Republican, again somebody who voted for Donald Trump. Yeah, and he got really angry. And he was giving these daily press conferences anyway to update on how the various recounts and challenges were going in Georgia. And one day he came out and he said, I'm going to give a slightly different press conference today, he says. I have something on my mind. I have to talk about this. And he went on a very emotional and gave a very strong speech about the scale of the threats and the frightening behaviour, really, that was being shown to his staff, to election officials and to election workers. My boss, Secretary Raffensperger, his address is out there. They have people doing caravans in front of their house. They've had people come onto their property. Trisha, his wife of 40 years, is getting sexualized threats through her cell phone. It has to stop. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. Death threats, physical threats, intimidation, It's too much. It's not right. They've lost the moral high ground to claim that it is. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. You have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. Gosh, it really shows 
how split the Republican Party is at the moment. I know people talk about the Democrats, but the Republican Party is split too. It really is. And as I mentioned earlier, what strikes me here in Washington and when you go out and about and speak to people on the streets is the level of belief and trust in Donald Trump that, yeah, this was robbed. And we've seen these big rallies. There's been two of them now in Washington since the election when thousands of people crowd onto the streets of Washington. They call them the Stop the Steal marches or the Million MAGA marches to show their support for Donald Trump. All of them adamant that this election was stolen from him and that there was voter fraud. And you say to them, but there's no evidence of this. And they come back and say, oh, that's just you, the fake news media. You are covering up this mass fraud. We're all in bed with the Democrats and it's all corruption. The most recent rally took place last Saturday. I went along. It was a smaller crowd than the previous rally a month before, but still, nonetheless, they were very adamant that the election was stolen. They were very vocal. And I asked some of the Donald Trump supporters there about this Georgia election that is coming up. And the question in my mind, Jackie, is, Donald Trump is spending so much time telling everybody that the Georgia system is broken and corrupt and rigged and fraud. Is there a danger that it will put off Republicans coming out and voting in the first place and it could damage the campaigns of those candidates? Here's what some of the Donald Trump supporters told me when I spoke to them last week. I think there are two good senators on the Republican side that should win, uh, but may not. And it- Do you think Donald Trump has done damage to that by coming out and saying the system is broken, there's voter fraud in Georgia. I think Do, he's is right. There, yeah, I think is he's there right. a danger that it'll put Republicans off from voting is my question. I think I think we're at a crossroads where a lot of us, I feel the Republican Party as a whole is, you know, the Democrats are off on the far left. The Republicans aren't, uh, aren't really, most of them don't have backbones. The election officials, the attorney general, they've all come out saying there's no evidence of fraud. Well, of course they are. That's who they want you to believe. But they also have no proof the other way. So if they say we have to prove there is, they should have to prove there isn't. But there is no proof that there is. There's a lack of evidence. Lack of evidence for court of law or reasonable doubt? We all believe there is. Georgia, are you watching that Senate race? Have you yes. any view? How do you think that's going to go? Uh, there's already fraud in it. We've well, already... I've already got a text message from Georgia wanting to send me a ballot. And we live in Tennessee. I live in Tennessee. So there's already fraud going on in Georgia on that race. But is there a danger, do you think, when Donald Trump talks about fraud in Georgia, that maybe Republicans won't come out and support their candidates because they think it'll be a fraudulent election? Well, it's going to make it hard on all the Georgians, but I still think they've got the faith in enough to to go out and vote because they know if they don't vote, we're not going to have a chance. That is fascinating, Brian, isn't it, their answers? Yeah, and the last couple there, I have to tell you about them. They were Greg and Robin Presley from Tennessee, appropriately named for being from Tennessee, the Presley family. And they had a black, fluffy, tiny little Pomeranian dog named Zoe. And they were kind of pushing her in this pram thing. (laughs) I'm going to make these people sound quite bizarre. But anyway, they were pushing her in a kind of a pram. A lot of dogs and puppies on states of mind today. Oh, yes, exactly, like Raphael Warnock. Now, Raphael Warnock would not have been campaigning with this said puppy, Jackie, because this puppy, Zoe, had her own little tiny Make America Great Again hat, and she had a red, woolly Donald Trump jumper. No. So she definitely wouldn't have been peering in an ad for a Democratic candidate. But yeah, so that's, that's some of the people that I met out on the street last week at the pro-Donald Trump rally in Washington. 
Oh, I, I, do you have a picture of that? You need to tweet it. Have you tweeted it? I will, actually. I will. No, I haven't yet. I will, though. I will. Absolutely, I will. I'll okay. make it my new... Um, no, I can't. I was going to say I'll make him a new profile picture, but there's a big make America great again in the middle of it. So no, won't be doing that. Anyways, back on track for us, because another reason for the strength of the blue vote in Georgia is down to black voters. They're the ones who make up the majority of the Georgia Democratic base, and they are going to be key in this election. Yes, and a lot has changed in Georgia since the midterm elections in 2018. We've had the COVID-19 pandemic, which, of course, has disproportionately affected the African-American community. And then, of course, we had the huge Black Lives Matter mm. movement. We had the killings of black men, Ahmed Arbery and Rashard Brooks, for example. Both of those happened in Georgia. This mobile phone footage captures the last moments of Ahmad Arbery's life as he was jogging through a Georgia neighborhood in February. As he approaches a truck, the 25-year-old is confronted by two armed men who reportedly believed he was a burglar. As Ahmad appears to try and avoid them, a shot rings out. Then a struggle ensues between the unarmed man and a white male with a shotgun. More shots ring out as Ahmad is shot point-blank before stumbling to the ground. And what we see in suburbs of big cities like Atlanta, they're becoming a source of political strength for Democrats. They're becoming more diverse. Latino voters are becoming a big part of the coalition too. And we very much saw this mobilization of black voters on the ground in Georgia. And one of them at the helm of that was Stacey Abrams. Now, people might remember her as the woman who went for Georgia governor back in 2018 and lost by fewer than 55,000 votes. Many believed she lost because of racially motivated voter suppression. We have a whole podcast done on this if anybody wants to dig deeper on voter suppression. And following her loss, Stacey Abrams, she said she was determined to make her mark in the state. And she refused to concede and then founded a voting rights group. Yeah, there were a few people along the re- the road here. I think that Joe Biden owes big thanks to and maybe big jobs yes. to in his cabinet. We've spoken in the past and we've spoken to in the past, for example, Congressman James Clyburn in South Carolina, who really helped him there in the primary. And here we have Stacey Abrams, someone who really helped Joe Biden in the state of Georgia. She was on a mission to mobilize the Democratic vote in the state during the presidential election. Remember, a presidential candidate from the Democratic side hadn't won Georgia since Bill Clinton way back in 1992. So Stacey Abrams founded Fair Fight. It promoted fair elections in Georgia and around the country. It encouraged voter participation and educated voters about their rights. In the 1960s, voter suppression was easy to identify. It was poll taxes. It was dogs and hoses and officers with billy clubs preventing people from casting their votes. For Native Americans, it was being denied the right to vote until 1924 when they became citizens of this country they'd lived in since its inception. What voter suppression looks like in 2020 is very different. It starts with making it hard to get on the rolls and stay on the rolls, cast a ballot and have that ballot counted. That's voter suppression in 2020. My mission is to remind every American, whatever you value, becomes real when we vote for people who will represent your values. And that cannot happen if voter suppression wins. Now, in October, Fair Fight raised $32 million and it donated it to various Democratic campaigns to improve voter registration and grassroots efforts. Now, since this organization, Fair Fight, was first founded back in 2018, it's been able to register 800,000 new voters in Georgia. Most of them are under the age of 30. And 49% of them are people of colour. And when you look back on Georgia and Joe Biden's win and the success that it was, he won the state by around 12,000 votes. 
And the, all of that data is so relevant because we were talking about it. Voters of colour and women were key to Biden winning the state in November. That's right. And if you look at the stats, you look at the data, 54% of women voted for Joe Biden compared to 55% of men who voted for Donald Trump. Democrats know the importance of black voters. And we have spoken about this in the past in a variety of different ways. It is a crucial voting block for them and they need them to come out in their numbers. So when you look at one of the Georgia campaigners we've been talking about earlier, one of the Democratic candidates, Raphael Warnock, his campaign has had 110 million digital ad impressions aimed at black voters. They've spent nearly $40 million on TV advertising and literature drops. And I can't help thinking, Jackie, the money that's being spent on this yeah. campaign. If you're a small local newspaper or a small local TV station in Georgia, you're making a fortune mm -hmm. right now because the money that's being pumped into this campaign on both sides really is through the roof. Yeah, and there's a lot at stake, but... What's happening here in Georgia with the likes of Stacey Abrams? It's part of a wider trend, isn't it? Uh, they worked really hard to get Joe Biden elected in November in diverse urban centres in key states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, like we've been talking about, and Pennsylvania, where there are large populations of black voters. Now, those people who worked so hard on the ground are demanding that Joe Biden gives thanks to all the work that they've done, that they do, by showing representation in his cabinet. Yeah, and it's almost now like it's time to pay the piper. OK, Joe Biden, we backed you from all these diverse sides of the US. You know, what, what are you now going to do in return? And the pressure is on him, I think, yes. And he has to reflect a diverse cabinet. He's been appointing his cabinet nominees over the last few weeks, trying to make them as diverse as possible. I guess for Joe Biden, the challenge is though he has to appeal to everybody. If he moves too far in one direction, it could anger another part of the party and another part of his voting base. It's quite the balancing act that he is trying to do. The cabinet appointments are moving ahead at pace. And I believe the suggestion is he's going to have them all done by Christmas. It's complicated though uh, while there have been people who have held roles before in the Obama administration there are a lot of firsts too it's a mixed bag. Yeah and there's been some concern and disappointment over his pick for example to head the Department of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. That's since news emerged last week that Joe Biden plans to bring him back to run the agency that he led throughout Barack Obama's two terms two terms and there's a concern that it won't be a fresh perspective. And that's been one of the criticisms of Joe Biden's picks. People saying, look, it's just going to be like an Obama third term. You're not being very creative here. You're just bringing back the same old names. I suppose we saw one of his most recent appointments, however, will be a new name, certainly from the perspective of that we didn't see it in the Obama administration, but it's a name that's familiar to everybody. And that is Pete Buttigieg, who was his Democratic rival during the primaries. He is going to appoint him this week as his transportation secretary. And then also in recent days, we saw him appoint his defence secretary. This went to General Lloyd Austin. If he's approved, he would become the first African-American to lead the Pentagon. We've seen other firsts as well in terms of the first women in this particular role or various people of colour in different roles. Is it enough 
Is it working? We're joined now by Kylie Scales, Principal of Think Free Global Strategies and former MD of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Kylie, thanks so much for joining us on States of Mind. We've been talking a lot about the power of black women in this election organising and mobilising votes on the ground. This is nothing new though, is it? It's been happening for years, but are we only seeing the fruits of all of that labour now? Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to join you again. Um, Yeah, you're correct. Uh, This work that has been going on on the ground with black women uh, mobilising voters um, has been going on for quite a while. Um, It's actually been at work for years. We've seen folks like Stacey Abrams reach out to low propensity voters um, and the New Georgia Project uh, register over 800,000 new voters um, in the past uh, several years. Uh, We've seen um, organizations like Black Voters Matter, uh, which is a organization that is run by um, uh, Latasha Brown, a Black woman, uh, mobilize voters on the ground um, for quite some time. So this is not new. How do you think Joe Biden is doing in terms of answering their call? You know, we mobilize people to get out and vote for you. Now we need something in return. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, we know that it's important for us to continue to hold elected accountable um, and continue to um, put the pressure on the administration to uh, fulfill its promise of making it the most uh, diverse administration in history. Uh, we'd love to see, we, I think we're off to a, a pretty decent start. We'd love to see uh, more cabinet appointments that are reflective of black women who've been doing this work for, for years and years. Joe Biden, recently it came out that in a private phone call, he said that he felt the defund the police rallying call was damaging for the Democrats. Do you agree with him? Do you think if we can call it the more extreme level of the Black Lives Matter movement that we saw throughout the year maybe was a little damaging for Democrats? And it was certainly something that Donald Trump latched onto in a very negative way. I think it's important for us to think about, um, I think when you have a slogan or a, a highly charged uh, rallying cry, it does make people go a little bit deeper. I think we're really focused in the sound of the messaging and what the messaging is, is what, what those words are, what that slogan is. But I think what's really important is to understand the deeper meaning. I think we kind of know what we're, what, what, what folks are asking for. I think we understand if we do a little research um, what what reimagining um, the police force looks like and redistribution of funds looks like. Um, so I, I would really, I think we're really focusing on that instead of this slogan that people seem to feel uh, feel as polarizing or feel a certain way about. Obviously, this was a good election for the Democrats. Joe Biden won, but they lost in the state of Florida. And one of the problems in Florida was the Latino vote in places like Miami-Dade County, which stuck with Donald Trump and stuck with the Republicans. Do you think the Democrats have a task ahead of them to speak to a more diverse voter base? Is that a challenge that they need to address, do you think, over the coming four-year term? Yeah, I think it's always something that we that Democrats should look at. A Democrat should always look at their entire voting block. I know that black women is their highest propensity voters. And so uh, we spent the Democrats spent a lot of time speaking to that voter block. Um, but of course, making sure that being more reflective of what America looks like and speaking to all voting blocks is very, very important. Absolutely. 
Do you think the next four years are going to be very difficult for Joe Biden? People are kind of tearing him apart at the moment. He is trying to be so many things at once and try to keep different groups happy. Is it an impossible task to keep everyone happy? Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone keeps everyone happy all of the time. But um, again, the way that we should approach this is a way that is reflective of America. I think that um, Joe Biden is right on track with saying that he says the right things about uh, um, looking at systemic racism, which has deep seated impact in the way this country functions and works. Um, he is taking he is holding court with various groups that are reflective of this country. And so that's important. And, and that shouldn't be overlooked for fear of not being able to please everyone. It is really about giving people the opportunity to give voice and having those people continue to put pressure on the electeds to um, deliver on their promises. It's just that simple. When we look back on 2020, it will be remembered, of course, for the election, the coronavirus pandemic, and the Black Lives Matter movement, the three huge things, really, that we saw here in the US in 2020. When you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and you look back on it now, looking back, reflective on the year, at the time, it felt this was different. This was going to make a change. This time, this was something new. Looking back now, did it achieve what you hoped it achieved? And can you hope that that momentum will be carried through into next year and beyond? The momentum will absolutely be carried through in the next year and beyond. Uh, the movement started seven years ago, and the, that rallying cry was something that um, lives at the groundswell. Uh, what we saw over this past year was that rallying cry reach fever pitch and reach the mainstream. And it is impossible for that action or that activity and then that progress to, to go away. Um, we continue to talk about it. You just asked me about it. So I know that we are still going to have it in our conversations every single day. I, I work with um, corporations, individuals, and organizations all over the world um, that are interested in moving forward their racial equity plans and their transformational work. So there's just, it's impossible for it to, to, to truly go away after what we've seen and after the impact it has had on each and every one of us. So Merry Christmas, Brian. Happy Christmas, Jackie. Anything special on the list? Can I get you a little mini <laughs> puppy-sized <laughs> Make America Great Again hat, woolly jumper? You don't have a dog in your life that you could bedeck in Donald Trump My brother for the has a new dog, yes. There so anything... Festooned <laughs> in Make America Great Again. Paraphernalia. Will be I'm sure eating all that. of the Christmas presents that are under the tree this Christmas, I assume. Ah. Yes, but I'm sure we'll forgive him. For the cuddles that he will bring afterwards. Absolutely. Grand. What type of a dog is he? It is a chug. It is a mixture between a chihuahua and a pug. It's actually oh, very cute. Very, very cute. That's a nice cute. mix. His name is that Otto. That's very cute. Yeah. Otto. Very yeah. Very good. Spoiled I like rotten. It. I like it. I like it. Spoiled rotten. But yeah, Merry Well, Christmas. enjoy Christmas yeah, with Otto and the family. Have a great one. Thank you so much. And hopefully you guys have a fabulous Christmas as well. And you get some time off. Absolutely. And everybody tune in again in the new year. A busy new year because we're no sooner back and we're going to have the Georgia yeah. runoffs that we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. We'll have the counting of the Electoral College votes on the eventually 6th of January. Eventually the inauguration. Just, eventually the inauguration. It'll feel like the, the, the longest period ever getting to yeah. that. So a busy January ahead when we return after the Christmas break. But have a good one, Jackie. Have a great Christmas. Yeah, and thanks everybody for listening over the past year. Uh, looking forward to chatting in the new year when hopefully there will be brighter times ahead for all of us. 
Happy Christmas. Bye.